is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. A very good afternoon to you. Happy Friday afternoon. Today you're going to learn about a new livestock ship that's going to be built that's going to be the first LiveX vessel capable of running on green fuels. All the news from the Australian Wool Innovation Annual General Meeting and there are some signs that the demand for wool and the prices could start heading in the right direction sort of early to mid next year. And of course, wrapping up the week that was in the wool market with Danny Burkett just before the news at one o'clock today. Five past twelve here on the Country Hour and you are off to Esperance on the state's south coast where a series of rain events this season has really raised concerns about the amount of wheat that sprouted and set to be heavily discounted on delivery. Jeremy Curry is research scientist with Deep Herd, based in Esperance. Jeremy, what's the level of concern here? Yeah, I guess at the moment it is just concerns. You know, with the rainfall, we have had quite a wet start to harvest, particularly in the southern areas of the state and where I'm based in Esperance. Um, it's been a very stop start to harvest. And so with that um, amount of rainfall, I guess there's concerns that the wheat may have started to sprout given it is sitting in the paddock. And a lot of growers are still harvesting canola and are yet to really start harvesting even barley, but let alone wheat. So just for the non-farmers, what does it mean when the wheat sprouts in the paddock? Yep. So, yeah, so as it sort of suggests, it's when the, if you get rainfall on a mature crop of wheat, um, that grain is actually capable of germinating. And so if it does start to sprout, I guess those physiological processes are negative in terms of the grain quality. And so if that's picked up when that grain's delivered, um, unfortunately it's downgraded into um, non-milling grades, which comes at a cost to the grower. Yeah, and what kind of uh, discounting would go on at that point? I mean, just give us a ballpark sort of figure. Yeah, ballpark. Um, not knowing the current price at the moment, but it can be you know up to $100 a tonne. Um, when you get downgrade from, say, an APW down to general purpose or feed. Yeah, okay, so you really want to avoid that <laughs> at any cost, yeah, I guess. Yeah, absolutely, particularly um, given they've, you know, it's been such a, you know, there's so much goes into growing the grain throughout the year and getting high yields and, you know, that grain, that dollar discount at the end of the season can really be um, you know, quite devastating. And you're seeing some of this sprouting going on in paddocks now. How widespread, what are you, what are you hearing as far as the, the area that this is happening? Yeah, unfortunately, it's quite hard to pick up. You know, you can monitor by hand threshing out grains, but until growers actually get into the wheat harvest, it will be hard to determine how much damage there is around, how much sprouting there is. Um, but we're certainly finding on the sand plain in Esperance some sprouted grains in our early sown crops, which can increase our risk. Um, but unfortunately, even with some of the rainfall that's occurred up in our Mallee areas in Esperance, um, I'm starting to find some sprouted grains there as well. So. Yeah, until we actually get into the wheat harvest, it'll be hard to tell how widespread and whether it's outside of the Esperance area and Albany Port Zone as well. But yeah, I guess at this stage, yeah, we're just hoping that it's not too widespread. And what are some of the contributing factors? Obviously rain, um, which we've, <laughs> we've had a lot of this season. Yeah. But in terms of the variety and the sowing dates, Jeremy, what can contribute to it? Yeah, so the varieties definitely differ in their risk. So scepter most people grow is reasonably robust. I wouldn't say it's resistant. Um, but in many seasons, most growers will be able to deliver their grain for milling grades without risk of sprouting. We are finding some of our newer varieties, ones like Rockstar, do seem to have a higher risk of pre-harvest sprouting. So for growers who might have sown Rockstar, they might find that those paddocks are going to be at a higher risk than, say, their paddock of Scepter. 
And as you've alluded to with sowing date, we just find that when we sow our crops earlier and they mature earlier, it, it does increase their risk. And that's a lot to, to do with the fact that we are more likely to get wet um, and cold conditions during October. And so if we sow earlier and our crops mature earlier, they're exposed to that greater level of rainfall. And just, um, you know, when you look back over the years, I mean, is it, is it often at this point that you start seeing these sort of signs of the sprouting in the paddock or is it a little bit more concerning this year considering the weather that's been experienced? Yeah, it is more concerning this year. The more rainfall events that you do have and the longer that grain stays wet, the more likely it is to sprout. And so this year, you know, it hasn't just been one or two rainfall events. It's been you know, several weekends in a row and a very stop-start um, harvest. And so that's where the concern lies because if you do get a bit of um, rainfall, it does predispose the crop and make it more susceptible to the next rainfall event. So it does sort of cascade in that way. And so that's where the concern is this year, just with the number of rainfall events and how long that rain has persisted for, you know, a couple of days at a time. Yeah, but you really don't know what you're dealing with until it's been harvested. No, until you get your grain sample and you look for sprouted grains, and then um, when it's delivered, it may be subjected to the following number test, which is the test upon delivery that determines how much sprouting damage there is in the grain. And that's where you really find out um, what you're dealing with. But mm. if you are seeing sprouted grains, it is, yeah, obviously it's um, already cause for concern. Yeah, okay. And it's only a concern... As far as the wheat goes, no other grain? In particular, it's an issue with wheat because of the delivery standards that wheat is applied to. But if you do start to see sprouting in barley or canola, I believe there would be downgrades applied to those too. But it, is, it tends to be less common in those crops. And so wheat is the main one that we talk about. And what, you know, if the growers have been look, look, went, gone out to the paddock, had a look around and they're sort of starting to see this, I mean, is there anything you can do at this point? It is very difficult at by the time of harvest to manage it. The only thing I could say is potentially if you do go out to your, you know, if, you, if you're harvesting in order of your sowing date and you start harvesting your earliest maturing crop first and you are finding it's already sprouted and it's going to be subjected to get downgrades, you might be better off just moving along and trying to salvage some of your later sowing, later maturing wheat and getting your quality grades for those and then coming back and, and harvesting the rest of it. Unfortunately, there's not much you can do. If you try and blend out um, sprouted grain, it tends to just downgrade the lot rather than, you know, improve the um, the poor sample. So uh, unfortunately, this time of year, it is just a matter of, uh, you know, getting the crop in as quickly as you can, which all growers are doing already. Jeremy, really good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Jeremy Curry, he's a research scientist based at Deep Herd's Esperance office. That's the Department of Primary Industry and Regional Development in Esperance. 12 past 12, Weather Wally on the text says, I must be old, but perhaps if we went back to seeding our crops in late April, May and harvesting late November or beginning of summer through to after Christmas, perhaps we'll avoid all this wet weather that comes with the season shift, especially in a La Nina year, instead of trying to seed in late February, March at the first drop of rain and harvesting through uh, September and October. Or is that just me? Ask the Weather Wally. Let me know your thoughts. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four to text through. 12 past 12, where there has been uh, some rain here in some parts of the grain growing regions, storms at times, hail at times even here in WA. But on the other side of the country, well, the weather's just been incredible, hasn't it? And the federal government has just announced emergency payments of up to $75,000 will be offered to a lot more New South Wales farmers impacted by the floods. 
New South Wales Farmers President Xavier Martin is happy because he says there's going to be a massive clean-up bill. Been a bit exasperated with uh, what's meant to be quite a nimble response under our natural disaster response agreement between the states and the federal government. But for whatever reason, there's been some delay, but look, we welcome it. Uh, it's been really required across all the valleys that are flood affected. I mean, these communities are from border to border and, and coast to, to the west that have been impacted. And, uh, you know, more than half the state's local government areas are, are enduring flood disaster now, which, uh, you know, we, we welcome the response. It's uh, really needed. OK, well, let's have a let's uh, hear a little bit about what Murray Watts said earlier today, about uh, about an hour ago in regards to that announcement. Yeah, I think all of us are really worried about what we're seeing out of New South Wales. Uh, the state, so much of the state has been in flood for so long and even over the last couple of weeks myself, I've, I've got to see it in places like Moree, Forbes, Gunnedah, Dubbo and the impact on agriculture and roads and infrastructure is immense. Um, so I'm really pleased to say that today we're partnering with the New South Wales government to increase uh, the grants available for primary producers. Uh, $25,000 grants have already been available but today we're upping that to $75,000. Some of the losses that farmers and rural communities are experiencing are huge uh, and I'm not going to pretend that those sort of grants are going to solve everything but I think they'll go a long way to helping people get back on their feet. That's a Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, there, and uh, they put a figure on it. They reckon that it's going to be more than $3 billion, this disaster that's impacting the whole of uh, the whole of the state of New South Wales. New South Wales Farmers President Xavier Martin joins me now again. Now, the other issue you'd like to see in terms of an announcement would be, and we heard it there from the Minister about the Defence Forces, you think that maybe that needs to be mobilised a bit more. We need more boots on the ground. Yes, it's... Uh, a lot of what um, Minister Watt had to say, I thoroughly agree with. And uh, but the point of, about the military, the Australian Defence Force uh, emergency response, and and we welcome that out there with the emergency at the moment. However, there's an ongoing uh, task that the ADF needs to be mobilised towards, and the federal government needs to authorise them to get on with repairing these fractured, these broken road corridors. I mean the the roads, whether they're uh, state or federal or local roads, it's beyond local government fleet to, to cope with the level of damage. We, we need to get the harvest off, Michael. And, uh, you know, the ADF has a massive earth-moving fleet. They've uh, got engineers too as well that could assist with that too? Exactly. And this is the sort of uh, situation. It's one thing to have resilience and work on it down the track, but we need a here and now response around getting this harvest off getting the communities working together again, getting to Christmas and New Year in a happy shape. And we've just had uh, the latest figures come from the DPI. They've given a statement about the damage, the agricultural damage, uh, lots of infrastructure damage, cropping and livestock damage, 10,600-plus livestock deaths, they reckon, fencing, uh, 4,000 kilometres, uh, hay and silage destroyed, 16,000 tonnes, stored grain, we've lost about 3,800 tonnes, we've lost 274,000 hectares of pasture. This is all self-reported from a, only about 780 landholders, so the DPI is saying that uh, damage bill is certain to rise, and the, what we're hearing is that this will take at least 12 months to, to recover and possibly more. Oh, look, our surveys within New South Wales Farmers Association, Michael, are showing at least that, if not more. We're starting to hear from members with these rolling events uh, where the landscape is so 
inundated and the amount of uh, repair work that's required, not just weed control, but, you know, getting fences back in place and even access roads back in place to get to them, that some are seriously doubting they're going to be able to realistically plan a winter crop next year. So they're not going to look forward to a harvest by Christmas next year, let alone a harvest this year. And I think for many members, many farmers I've spoken to, you know, there was always that optimism that, hope as a volunteer businessman in the landscape trying to make a living out of feeding and clothing you know 100 million people i think a lot of them were hoping for you know some minor miracle to break even but many are realizing now they're in a thoroughly damaging loss situation and uh we need to all work together support each other look after our neighbors our communities you know there's a real need to access any of that support around well-being or mental health and look out for each other. I mean, it's great to be celebrating National Ag Day and, and how well we do feeding and clothing so many millions of people, but we also need to be aware that there's a, a big effort to, to get to a happy Christmas and New Year. Yes, that reminds me, happy Agriculture Day to you. 18 past 12, New South Wales Farmers President Xavier Martin talking to the New South Wales Country Hour presenter Michael Condon just a short time ago. 18 past 12. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. The Commission, uh, well, an update on the port situation with 17 of Australia's main ports not going to be locked down today. That is the key outcome from yesterday's Fair Work Commission hearing between Switzer Australia and the unions about pay and conditions for tugboat captains, engineers and deckhands. The Commission ordered Switzer to scrap its plan to lock out tugboat workers from today. The Tribunal felt a lockout of maritime workers could cause significant damage to the Australian economy. Just to recap, if you haven't been following the story closely, earlier this week the Danish-owned company announced it would lock out almost 600 tugboat workers from 17 ports across Australia. Here in WA, that would have affected Fremantle, Geraldton, Quinana and Albany. Overnight, the Commission has also handed down a six-month suspension of all industrial action from both parties. So that means Switzer can't lock out tugboat workers from its workplace. And hopefully that means imports and exports at our major ports can continue as normal for at least the next six months. 19 past 12. The ASX-listed company Wellard is looking to add a new vessel to its fleet of live export ships called the Ocean Gillaroo. It's going to cost around $60 million US dollars to build and will be the first live export ship in the world capable of running on green fuels. But as Executive Chairman John Klepek explains, there's been a few hurdles along the way to get it built. No, it hasn't been built yet and we've put the plans on hold um, probably for 12 to 18 months. But we've progressed it uh, and the people here would have seen, we've got the graphics of it, etc. It is, uh, takes into account all the latest technology that's available. And importantly, uh, on the fuel side of things, as the shipping industry moves into a um, limiting carbon emissions, the ship will have to uh, uh, operate on different fuels. That is not uh, clear at the moment. You know, um, LNG is the main one that, that is being used in the shipping world at the moment as an alternative fuel, but that's a, that's a transition fuel, not, not to the end point. And what is the end point, sorry, for fuel? 
something that doesn't emit a carbon, I suppose. Uh, green hydrogen or something like that? Yeah, uh, quite possibly. But when you go into that, the, the one, the commerciality of that is not there yet. And there needs to be supplies of the fuel around the world to be able to fuel those ships. Uh, we do very long hauls, uh, you know, South America to, to China as an example. You need to have the supply at the port as you currently have with bunker around the world. So there's a whole infrastructure, whatever fuel that ends up being, all the big shipping companies in the world are spending vast amounts of money progressing this. But there is no, right now today, if we, uh, we push the button on the ocean Jillaroo, it'll be uh, operating on, on a dual fuel a basis with the uh, ability to be able to convert at a low cost to whatever fuel it ends up being. So you, you need to keep the options open as that technology progresses and a new fuel is found. As you say, plans are sort of paused at the moment. It's not easy getting a ship built right now. Tell us about that. No, and, and that's the reason why we paused it. At the moment, because of what's happened uh, with the uh, world shipping in terms of uh, container ships, huge demand. The shipping companies placed vast amounts of orders, so all the shipyards in the world are at capacity and have got forward order books of you know many months. So to come to them with a, a bespoke product like a livestock carrier and say, yes, we want this one-off ship built, there's just no appetite from most of the shipyards in the world. And you need several shipyards to step forward. We have one or two that are interested, but unless there's competitive tension, you're not going to get the commercial outcome that's desirable. And, it, and the overlay on top of that, price of steel, which has moderated uh, recently, but when we were out there getting quotes for the ship, the price of steel had hit, hit some peaks. And that's, that's a major part. Of, obviously, that's a major part of a ship. Uh, so if you have the, the major raw cost at all-time highs and you have shipyards not willing to do the work because they've got multiples of, of the same ship, which they can punch out pretty quickly at good margins... It's not the conducive, uh, conducive market for a ship. But having said all that, these things do change. As quick as the, the shipyard's got full, they can become empty again and, and they will change. So we're in a monitoring situation. In general, are there many new live export vessels getting built? None. Um, the last, uh, we had one uh, that was started to be built at the, uh, the Ocean Kelpie, which is uh, where we had the, uh, um, we got the refund guarantee because the shipyard went broke. That's um, um, uh, the Ulyunik guys in, um, in Croatia. And uh, at the same time, KLTT were also building a ship which uh, has been scrapped as well. Um, so there was two ships in that particular yard being built at the same time. But both of them, uh, the shipyard fell over, and to my knowledge, there's no one else in the market that is currently uh, building a ship. So the last new ship purpose-built carrier was the Ocean Shearer, which is now um, the Al Kuwait uh, we sold to KLTT, and that was uh, built in 2016. So you've had a gap now, what's six years, and if you add another couple of years on for... Uh, a new build if you started today so you've got an eight-year gap since a, since a new ship and what do you think that means for all cattle and sheep producers listening what it means whoever builds a new ship will be in a very good position in 10 years time uh, because they will be uh, um, a, an efficient ship running the right fuel with very limited competition so that's why we see the opportunity um, and we've said it often enough the age the uh, um, livestock carriers across the world is excessively high it's the uh, second oldest fleet in the world. You know, the average age is over double a container ship. There's uh, many ships out there. Uh, these are, uh, luckily, they don't come, uh, they don't come to Australia because they're not AMSA approved. They, quite frankly, should be on the beach uh, cut up. You know, you know, they just shouldn't be in, in the market. So 
as time goes on, they get older. Uh, a new ship coming in will have limited competition because all the other ships will have aged that period of time as well. Wellard finances have, have been improving over the last few years. The cost of building a new ship, what does that do to the budget? Well, we won't be. Uh, we will be looking at a, an alternative funding uh, a model for the new ship. I.e., we will not be borrowing um, the money that's required to build the ship and taking it on uh, the risk on all ourselves. The industry is a spot market for volume and a spot market for price, and to expect a um, a company to to put a huge capital cost uh, spend it on without any guarantees of any returns is just not uh, feasible. So we will be looking to those who benefit from the trade the most uh, to participate in a uh, SPV uh, um, funding vehicle where they will they will fund the ship. We will have a share in it, but we will be the operator of the ship, uh, not the 100% owner of the ship. And so finally, tell us a little bit more about the Ocean Jillaroo. When she eventually gets up and going, can you tell our radio audience a bit more of, of what it will look like, how many head, all that type of stuff? Well, it's still because it's not... I, I don't want to go too too much into detail because... The picture looks so good, John. Yeah, yeah, the picture looks... Yeah, the picture's fantastic. But, you know, look, we're looking around the... You know, in terms of size, uh, it's not as big as a, a Drover, but it's bigger than our, our, our other ship. Uh, so you'd say it's a large carrier, 15, 14, 15,000 square metres. It will have the ability to uh, travel, you know, do the la- uh, large distances from South America to Asia with fuel, no, no, no stopping for an extra fuel... So there's a lot there. Um, the fact that we've even got a name for it is, you know, we shouldn't. I suppose we shouldn't be going out with a name before you actually build it. But, but it is. It is also part about educating the, the the market of where we intend to go with this. When the shipyard is available, etc., we do intend to launch. Because look, fundamentally, although the markets, the slaughter and feeder markets into Indonesia and Vietnam are pretty bad at the moment and will continue to be bad for another you know, four to six months. We're optimistic of the future for the industry. We do see a return to volumes, and when that re- uh, volume returns, we intend to be the major operator from Australia into those markets. That is Executive Chair of Wellard, John Klepek, speaking to Matt Bran. And according to Wellard's promotional video, the Ocean Jillaroo is going to be capable of exporting around 11,000 head of cattle. And just a correction, the last purpose-built livestock vessel was actually the Aurochs, built in 2017. You can read more about that story online. Search ABC Rural Wellard Green Live Export and you'll see Maddie's story. It should be the first link that pops up on your screen. 28 past 12. The head of BP has been in Australia this week because he sees enormous opportunity for the renewable energy and critical minerals in WA's north. BP is the world's biggest oil and gas operator, but earlier this year the company became the lead operator of a hydrogen project midway between Broome and Port Hedland. Chief Executive Bernard Looney says he's excited about what the future holds. It's great to be here because you, you always get a better appreciation when you when you go, right, and you're present. But I'm really excited for the country because if I look at the history of the country and the resources that it's had, the coal, the liquefied natural gas, all the things that you have, you're also blessed 
with extraordinary uh, transition resource, whether it be in the uh, the metals uh, segment, where I'm told the top three resources in the world and lithium and nickel and copper are here in Australia, but not just that. Plenty of sun, plenty of wind, coastal locations. So this concept of can Australia become a renewable energy powerhouse is absolutely there. Now, of course, what you need at the back of that is on top of the resources, you need a market. You're right next to Asia. Um, 60% of the, uh, the population in the world by 2030 will be in Asia. Two thirds of the growth of population by 2030 will be in Asia. You're right here. You've got the markets right there. Absolutely brilliant. And then we need supportive government policy. And I think the government is working through that at the moment. BP bought a controlling 40% share in the Asian Renewable Energy Hub, which is also known as the AREH. And if it all happens, it's going to be one of the biggest in the world, 10 times the size of Singapore. As you'd imagine, Bernard Looney is looking forward to the hub's development. AREH, hugely exciting, 26 gigawatts of potential. That's a third of the electricity generated uh, in Australia. So this is real scale. What's it got going for it? It's got the space. It's got the the combination of solar and wind. It's got the port access. It's got the access to water. It's close to a market. So it's got the ingredients, Daniel, to be very, very special. And we've got the capability and the experience of building massive projects. You know, this is what the LNG business was built on. Building multi-billion, tens of billion dollar projects, bringing it all together, managing the various issues and challenges, the supply chain, the above ground issues, the societal issues. So I'm really excited. Now, you know, we we have some ways to go to sanction a project, but the ingredients are there. And that's why we wanted in on this project. Australia is one of the top places in the world in terms of the physical characteristics that are necessary to develop green hydrogen green ammonia, which could become the way of transporting um, a green hydrogen. Um, and now we need to make sure that the right supportive policies are in place to bring that to fruition. BP Chief Executive Bernard Looney speaking to the ABC's energy reporter, Daniel Mercer. 29 to 1, time to check in with the newsroom with Brianna Shepherd. Hello. WA Health has reported 9,065 new COVID-19 cases over the last seven days, a 13% rise from the week before. There are 179 people with the virus in hospital, three in ICU. The latest report includes 15 deaths in people aged between 76 and 100. The Prime Minister is calling on Russia to surrender those responsible for killing 298 people on flight MH17 in 2014. 38 Australians were among those killed when the Malaysia Airlines flight was struck by a surface-to-air missile over eastern Ukraine. A court in the Netherlands has found three pro-Russia separatists guilty of murder and sentenced them to life in prison. Anthony Albanese has welcomed the court's finding. And WA police are seeking information about an assault on a pregnant woman at a park east of Perth. Midland detectives say the woman aged in her 20s was assaulted by a man at Sherlock Park in Jane Brook around half past four on Tuesday afternoon. More news on the hour. Thank you very much for that, Brianna. It is 28 to 1. This week on Landline, we go mining for the crucial fertiliser phosphate. This is basically the old inland sea. Millions and millions of years of uh, sedimentary runoff. The phosphorus is basically mixed up with clays from the inland sea. 
and earning money for carbon captured in soil. I'd like to know every kilo of beef that I've put on the animals, how much carbon we're putting back in the soil. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Between now and one here on the Country Hour, uh, checking in on some of the news coming out of Australian Wool Innovation's annual general meeting, which is underway in Sydney today. And there are some signs that things could be turning around in China with its COVID zero policy and China getting on top of that sort of early to mid next year, which obviously means uh, has a flow on effect to the wool industry here in Australia. It could increase the demand and uh, the prices of wool, which would be great because the wool market is down again this week. Danny Burkett will go through the details for you just before one o'clock. Right now, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Catherine Shelfout is with you today. Catherine, it feels like a blast of winter around the Southwest Land Division today. It certainly does, Belinda. It's quite unseasonal and uh, not very popular, I'm sure, with the farmers or this rain. But uh, yes, we had a cold front that crossed uh, the West Coast in the early hours of this morning. It's now moved through most of the Southwest Land Division. It's sitting um, over through the goldfields there, but still some showers and thunderstorms around. Uh, yeah, there were places that um, got up to 37 millimetres around the Southwest Coast and even 30 mils in the Perth Hills. Um, but that will be easing um, today um, as as it moves, moves east and we're just sort of in onshore flow showers. So um, we do still have the cold pool moving over the south. So it's really cold around the place as well. And uh, we could have small hail in any of those showers still coming through today and pretty fresh southwesterly winds as well. Uh, but from tomorrow, we'll see a ridge uh, moving in fairly quickly over the west coast. So um, sort of up over the central west coast and we'll still have southwesterly winds, but they will be easing during the day. Uh, fairly cool overnight tonight through inland parts around four to five degrees through the wheat belt and the Great Southern, um, but a little warmer uh, through during the day um, than today. So uh, around 16 degrees through the southwest and high to low high teens to low 20s for the Great Southern and the Wheat Belt. Um, and those showers will um, contract to the south coast as well. So we'll see, perhaps see some around the lower west and the southwest corner during the morning. But as the day progresses, really those showers just um, moving right back towards the south coast and uh, clearing the Wheat Belt and Great Southern, those sort of farming areas. Um, through Sunday and Monday, we'll see that ridge push east uh, right along uh, through into the Eucla and uh, really conditions will start to fine up a bit. So winds will ease and turn southeasterly on Sunday afternoon and uh, a bit more east-southeasterly on Monday. And we will start to see a west coast trough forming um, down the coast, obviously, on Monday and those winds freshening up a little bit. So that will um, mean temperatures warming, uh, particularly near the west coast, um, but most importantly, fine conditions and um, showers really um, clearing and uh, maybe just near the south coast on Sunday, but um, well and truly cleared by Monday. And then on Tuesday, we'll see that west coast trough really deepen. So that'll be the hottest day um, through the central west. Uh, temperatures getting up to maybe 38 degrees at places like Malawa and uh, into the mid 30s for the wheat belt. But um, perhaps most interestingly or of concern, that trough does become active. So we will start to see some uh, shower and thunderstorm activity with that on Tuesday and potentially also Wednesday, but that will move further east. So uh, for Tuesday, just a chance of a thunderstorm, yeah, through the central west and the wheat belt and the great southern as well. Yeah, certainly frustrating for those who are trying to get some harvesting done. What's the story in northern and eastern parts then, Catherine? 
It's been pretty active in the eastern Kimberley as well. So we had a couple of locations up there get um, about 55 millimetres in thunderstorms yesterday. So really similar again today, a chance of um, some heavier falls and um, maybe even some damaging wind gusts. But it's it's really um, sort of central and eastern Kimberley and the north interior. And from tomorrow, um, all that activity will start to move a little further west, so just sort of creep back towards the west coast, um, including um, getting as far up maybe as Broome on Monday and then starting to push into the northern um, or eastern Pilbara and the north interior on Tuesday. So that's as a trough uh, kind of extends along the Pilbara coast with the ridge uh, moving through um, the south of the state. Um, but the Pilbara, Gascoigne and Goldfields clear for the next few days at least until that activity moves south. And then the warning for today. So for today, we do have a strong wind warning extending all the way around the coast from the East Pilbara coast down to Esperance, and that will push a little further east uh, tomorrow with gales along the Eucla coast. Uh, we have a sheep graziers warning out, uh, obviously with the cold temperatures, wind and showers, and we do have um, extreme fire danger, so a fire with a warning through the northern goldfields and the south interior. Thank you so much for that, Catherine. 22 to 1. Richard Hudson in the studio now to go through the rainfall figures. Yeah, and in the northern and eastern forecast districts, again, the main rain was in the Kimberley, Elquestro 12, Kachana 59, Nicholson 7, Warman 9 and Wyndham Airport 17. Nothing recorded in the Pilbara, but shortly we're going to take you to Narina Downs. That's just northeast of Newman. They've had some very good rain recently, so you're going to hear from the owner, Joe Paul, shortly about just what it means for them. But in the goldfields, uh, Credo 10 mils in the Eucla. Eucla itself had a nice drop, 43. So I wonder if the stations in that area got some of that rain as well. Air 15, Forest 13 and Red Rocks Point 20. And then in the Southwest Land Division forecast districts, I can safely say pretty much everywhere got some rain between 1 and 9. Uh, no, this is controversial, Belle, but I am going to have the cut-off point being 10 mils today. Should I say the text now? No, don't. <laughs> I just don't think everyone is just waiting with bated breath to hear if their location had four... Seven or eight. So we'll go at 10 and above. In the Central West, Alanooka 12, Badgingarra had 9 to 10, Barberton East 11, Canterbury 10, Geraldton Airport also received 10, Durian Bay 11, Lancelin Defence 17, Moascar 11, New Norcia had between 10 and 14, Tabletop 12, the Lower West, Bickley 27, Bindoon 17, Bungendore 22, Chidlow 14, Dwelling Up 21, Gidjigan up 12, Jinjin 11 to 13, Glen Eagle 22, Jandicott 16, Jaredale 24 to 27, Julemar Forest 18, Lake Chittering 13, Lancelin East 24, Mandurah 16, Millenden 12, Minston Park 13, Mulyabini 11, Moondarbrook 12, Mount Solis and Mushe 15, Perth had between 17 and 23, Pinjarra 13 to 25, Serpentine 18, Wanneroo 15, Waruna 20, Werribee 11, Whiteman Park 18. In the southwest, Beadle up 27, Boyne up north 10, Cape Naturalist 16, Carlotta 10, Harvey recorded 14, Logebrook 30, Manjum up 14 to 17, Margaret River 11, Mount William 21, Mile up 11, Northcliffe 19, Pemberton and Quinnan up 21, Rosabrook and Scott River 10, Shannon 22, Walpole Forestry 18, Yanmar 12. Then in the southern coastal region, Albany 14, that was the only one at 10 or above. 
In the central wheat belt, Dal Wallanew recorded 11, uh, Mount Noddy 10, and then in the great southern region, uh, Mordetta recorded 11. But uh, I'm, I stress again, just about everywhere got at least a few mils somewhere. But uh, you were saying just a while ago, Bell, that for some regions, having rain at this time of the year is not so good. It's causing a little bit of um, some problems to the crops and everything. But if you go just a little bit south of Perth, this sort of rain is still welcomed. Brothers Joe and Tony Angie are dairy farmers at Yarloop. So we're talking about 130 kilometres just south of Perth. They had some more rain overnight, but I'll tell you what, they're not complaining. I, I believe it's been over 15 mil already. So by today, I think we might end up with at least an inch of rain. Mm. So it's a bit more than what sort of I expected. Yeah. yeah but um, for our business, and it's been good rain um, because, um, you know, we save water. Uh, we um, grow feed, which will grow into the summer, which will give us um, plenty of feed. So it's come at a good time for you at the dairy here? Yeah, yeah, just in time because the, the pastures are still green and still growing and, and I think it will benefit us, yeah. Mm. And saving water is a, is a big help for us. So. Um, but you mentioned stone fruit growers. Mm. It may not be such good news for them. Yeah, probably these late summer rains for the stone fruit guys are probably a bit late and could do some damage. Mm. But us guys have been, been in the dairying game at... Everything's still green, and, and uh, this late shower would definitely keep it green and growing and yeah. save a bit of watering, you know. And yeah. the new variety of grasses, um, quick growing with less water these days, are definitely a, a, a plus for yeah. us. Yeah. yeah. And, Tony, what are you doing at the farm at the moment? Have you finished cutting hay? Yes, yeah, we just finished uh, um, cutting hay and uh, in the process of bringing it all in and, uh, yeah, put it all away for the summer and for the winter. Um, it's been a pretty good season. Um, yeah, made plenty of silage and plenty of hay to get us through, yeah. I say pretty much everybody's bailed up and mm. there's still a lot of hay outside that has to come in, but I think as far as bailing... Just about I, there. Yeah. I think everyone's at that level, finishing mm. off. Yeah. Is it unusual to have rain this late in the season? Oh, Harvey? this much, yeah. yeah. Yes, it's, it's quite a big uh, downfall for this time of year. You wouldn't want it any later because, um, you know, once everything's dead or there's fruit you know, and maturing, I think wouldn't be any real good uh, purpose for it. But like I said, at this moment, uh, it probably got its good and its bad points, you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You can hear that rain in the background, can't you? Dairy farmers at Yarloop, brothers Tony and Joe Angie. Catching up with Georgia Hargreaves. It is 17 to 1. You're off to the Pilbara now because I hear things are looking pretty green there. Also, Noreen Downs, Noreena Downs is about 160 kilometres northeast of Newman. Joe Paul runs the station with his sister and says they've had an unusually good season. It's been a reasonably good year. We had very good cattle prices for most of the year, uh, besides a bit of a slump in prices there with the panic with the FMD but that seemed to have all blown over now. Weather-wise has been, we did get lucky, the summer was not very good but we did get winter rain and it seems to have, I mean most people got winter rain so they were able to keep feed growing. Yeah it was pretty amazing driving in through the Pilbara down towards sort of Oski Roadhouse just how green it was looking in November which isn't very common. I mean I believe you got some, some September rain for maybe the first time ever. 
yeah, it, it's pretty just a given out on the east side that it just doesn't rain in September. And yeah, we've had 34 and I think a 15, which were, you know, it doesn't seem like a lot, but for September it is extremely unusual. And it was pretty cool around that time as well for, for a, at least a week or two, it was some cool temperatures. So did that, you know, do the, do the grass some, some good? Yeah, yeah, well, it definitely helped with the grass growth. If you know, there's no burn off from the sun, yeah, so that was very good. We kept managed to, yeah, having green feed and this time of the year is very unusual. You mentioned that the prices were pretty good. Where did most of your cattle go this year? Largest one was, yeah, shipping to Israel and then the local markets um, with heifers that for store cattle, um, for other people's breeders and to slaughter. And as you go into the the hotter months, although it still seems pretty moderate for the start of November, uh, what's your plan over the next few months? Uh, it's just, yeah, the water points, make sure everything's ready for when it does get hot and the cattle need large quantities of water. We're just, yeah, at the present moment, making sure everything's ready to go. Yeah, just getting into that less labour-intensive buildings, let's say more solar, um, putting in large amounts of um, telemetry, water monitoring telemetry. You obviously don't have a lot of staff at this time of year, but are you putting plans in for, for your next season? How, how are you looking for staffing for next year? Yeah, well, we're, we're pretty much just going to start beginning advertising for recruitment next year and we'll probably be yeah using a contract mustering crew as well uh, next year. Do you have to work any harder at the moment? I mean, we've talked about the labour shortage in every industry and particularly in your part of the world, near Newman, the mines is a pretty attractive offer as well. How do you as a pastoralist compete with, you know, what some of the bigger companies are able to pay staff? Um... <laughs> To be honest, I wouldn't know how we compete because I don't think we're competing very well. I think it's more of a lifestyle choice. It's people, you know, some people just don't want to work in the mines. They do realise there are other options. Yes, we may, it may not pay you as well, but it is, in my opinion, a far better lifestyle. But it's not for everyone. Joe Paul, who runs Narina Down Station with his sister Kate, 160 kilometres northeast of Newman, and he was speaking to Michelle Stanley. 13 to 1 here on the Country Hour and heading to the south of the state now because a Discover Great Southern event was held in Singapore last week. Tom Wisdom runs Plantagenet Wines. He was on the trip and says it was just a great opportunity for producers in WA's Great Southern region to get their foot in the door with Southeast Asian markets. It was a great event because it gave the producers and the industry in the Great Southern the opportunity to go back into market in a coordinated manner. So very valuable to once again, I guess, be present in markets that are important to us. So that was the opportunity to attack the Singapore market to develop new business and new relationships. I think it's significant for the Great Southern because we would like to showcase the great things about it. And for us, that's really high quality uh, wine production certainly from my point of view, but also equally a really high value food proposition and protein proposition. And from a tourism element to get people back into our market from places like Singapore. And what sort of difference will it make to be able to access these markets? Uh, Well, it's all incremental, Sophie, I suppose. So if you can go up there and, and gain distribution in Singapore, and then you can go up there and consolidate that and perhaps gain some distribution into Malaysia or Vietnam or uh, South Korea or Taiwan. It's all incremental, but for an entry point, Singapore is a global 
uh, I guess, city is a, is a fantastic place to commence that journey. And we, we can't forget that the last three years have pretty much been very limited ability to go and talk to markets. So we've identified Singapore along with the Great Southern Development Commission as the most appropriate re-entry point. So that was what this week was all about. Tim Wisdom, he's the general manager at Plantagenet Wines and he was speaking to Sophie Johnson. 12 minutes to one. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Great to have you along. And Danny Burkett will be here shortly. He's going to go through the wool market details for you. The market down again this week. We'll see how many bales were on offer, who was buying and what's in store for next week. First, though, Australian Wool Innovation says there are some good signs that China could be coming out on the other side of its COVID zero policy by early to mid next year, which could really improve the fortunes for the wool industry. Chair of the industry's research and marketing body, Jock Laurie, has been talking to wool growers at AWI's annual general meeting underway in Sydney today. In his opening address, he acknowledged some of the challenges, some of the heartache growers have experienced right across the country. First of all, what I'd like to do is recognise the... Uh, damage that's been done in the last 12 months, damage that's been done by bushfires. And we know in Western Australia there were some pretty major fires that caused some um, severe damage uh, and cost uh, to uh, to many of our levy payers. Uh, and it's taken them a while to recover out of that. And as a company, we've done whatever we can to provide um, support and facilities to get them through that process. Uh, and just recently, right now, as it stands, the floods that are happening across the eastern seaboard are really having a devastating impact. And some of the, in fact, some of the footage that I've seen this morning around down through the Hay Plain and different areas, it is quite staggering. Uh, and the problems that's creating in getting sheep, Sean, um, looking after the welfare of sheep and managing all those things right across the eastern seaboard, I think it's very important that we as a company understand those issues and do whatever we, ca- uh, whatever we can to actually help people through that process. Uh, the wool market, <clears throat> as it stands at the moment, is um, we would all love it to be higher, quite frankly, but there are underlying reasons are probably why it's sitting where it is at the moment. We do a lot of investment in regard to trying to make sure that we can continue building demand for wool to create more competition in the marketplace, which is what it's all about. And then at an on-farm level to make sure that we're doing R&D, which is trying to remove uh, cost or support cost of production to minimise that as much as we possibly can so that we can actually have those combining factors of demand and and, uh, finding better ways, better chemicals to reduce cost of production on farm and that combination will keep us competitive. The underlying thing here with the wool market at the moment is dealing with the economic circumstances internationally and some of that's coming out of COVID. Um, in our biggest trading partner when it comes to wool China, there's still some strong restrictions which are, re- which are limiting the domestic activity when it comes to uh, purchasing a product there and that's having, without any doubt, having an impact on the, on the wool market uh, and we can only hope that the Chinese continue managing the problem and get their vaccination rates up at what you're talking about, and then we can really start to see those volumes uh, lift again. And if we can, we can see that flow through into the market. They're a tremendous partner of the Australian wool industry. We've been saying this on a regular basis. They uh, have been very, very strong through the COVID period. Uh, we've been selling a lot of raw wool, a lot of our raw wool going back into into China, uh, and the Australian wool industry, you know, are very thankful for the amount of support that they provided to the industry. So we'd really like to see them work their way through this and come out the other end, come out very strongly. And there's certainly some predictions around the fact that, or hope around the fact that that'll be happening in the first or second quarter next year. Uh, Global inflation as it sits at the moment, 
obvious problem and, and sitting in on that inflation, the thing that operates, you know, just about everything that's going on being energy, price, energy prices and interest rates. And energy prices, quite frankly, in all of the processing sector, we've got a long supply chain, everything we do, we've got a component of energy and that and energy is extremely dear throughout the process. So that's making it very competitive. And I think on an international stage, I think it is really challenging to, to understand, you know, where the early stage and late stage process is going to end up because a lot of it's going to do with have to do with the cost of production and that'll be sitting around land values to a certain extent, sitting around power prices, labour costs, all of those things that can actually turn around and remain to serve, allow us to be competitive at the end product in the market. So there's, there's real challenges there and we know that and we've just got to uh, keep working through that. There has been some work done about bringing some early stage domestic processing back into Australia and there'll be a second, um, a lot of that work being done, which John might talk about in a, in a minute. But one of the things is creating the the problems when it comes to competition are the big issues that are in Australian wool industry at the moment, and that is around the shearing space. And while um, we're getting evidence that that, um, that problem is being alleviated to a certain extent, some of the work that's been done, it is still a massive problem in some areas across Australia. And the cost of shearing has, uh, has really become a, a big cost in many uh, sectors where people are now seriously having a look at whether it's worthwhile continuing. Certainly in the meat sheep sector at the broader end, the market's very disappointing and in many cases I think the cost of shearing is not being covered by the, the wool that's being taken off them. So we're, we're well aware of that, well aware of the, uh, of the difficulties. So we've invested heavily in the shearing space and we will continue to invest. I think a commitment about six months ago for about $10.5 million for the next three years from that time uh, for learner training and uh, novice training in sheds and shed staff training. That is uh, a long-term commitment so that we can set programs in place to actually really try and drive the numbers up. So there's a huge amount of work to be done there. And then the things around flies, chemical resistant issues around flies and around, uh, around drenches are always an ongoing problem. We have started to see quite a few issues around barber's poleworm with the wet seasons in non-traditional areas, should I say. Um, and that's been a surprise to quite a few people who have never dealt with those worms before and many people don't know what I'm talking about but I can tell you they're a devastating and have a devastating impact. So the, the company actually put together some webinars uh, last year and obviously coming into the best of the summer gets going again, the worms get going again, having a look at how we can actually continue on those webinars to inform people across Australia how they should be managing some of these worm problems is going to be a, a really important issue. Australian Wool Innovation Chairman Jock Laurie addressing the crowd, the wool growers, in Sydney today at AWI's annual general meeting. This is the Country Hour and it is five to one. Let's see what happened in the wool market this week. It is down again this week. The eastern market indicated down nine cents to close at 1,232 cents a kilogram clean and the western market indicator is down two cents to close at 1,379 cents a kilo clean. Uh, Danny Burkett, hello, what's the story? Yeah, certainly down in Australian terms, but interestingly to note that if you look at the eastern market indicator in US terms, that was up 27 cents for the week. The last time that happened was four weeks ago. The EMI jumped 34 cents in US terms, but that coincided with a falling exchange rate. And we felt that straight into the Australian greasy market. This week, unfortunately, we've had an exchange rate that's uh, pretty much jumped up just below 68 cents. And that has absorbed all of that uh, lift in the market to our greasy market. So, unfortunately, I think the exchange rate has beaten us this week. In Fremantle, we had 17 micron. There were very few to quote. So they quoted that at 2,000 cents clean. That was firm on last week. 18 micron off 10 cents clean, closing at 1,700 flat. 
19 micron $15 flat. That was off 20. 20 microns up 30 this week, close at 13.95. 21s up up 20 to close at $13. And for the first time in a long time, Fremantle market did not quote a 22 micron as there were insufficient volume to quote. Just an interesting point at the moment also in the market, it's become very centre sensitive. If we look at 18 microns in the north, they are probably trading roughly a dollar higher than the other two centres. Interestingly, if you look at 20 micron, it was the Fremantle market where it was the place to be. And then if you look at 21s, it was the southern market that jumped 41 cents. So we've had a 18 micron in the north being hunted uphill and down there. We had 20 micron in the west similar and the 21s in Melbourne. So an interesting scenario for the market that I haven't seen for a while. Pieces and bellies in Fremantle across the board, regardless of fault or micron, off 25 clean for the week. And a slight reduction in lock stains and crutchings. Uh, off 10 on the first day, but remain firm on the second. We look at the wiener types, that's 50 to 60 millimetre bracket, fully firm. Lambs, again this week, if you are building lambs that have seed fault above 0.3, they are starting to feel the pressure in the market and fall away slightly. In saying that, they have been strong for a very long time. Just walk you through, we cleared $40 million worth of wool this week. That now, that position is $7 million less than this time last year. That's because our offered bales across the floor are slightly less. And even though the offered bales are slightly less, I would suggest that um, doesn't paint the full picture because our past-in rates are much higher this year, so we're clearing less wool for the trade. And who was buying, Danny? It's good to see in our buyers this week, we had Endeavour Wool Export, 16% of the market, or just above that, that was in Merino Fleece Wool, we had Tech Wool Trading, 14%. PJ Morris, the West Australian business, at 115 TNU also at 8%. So we had those big exporters operating at the top end of the market, which was great to see. Uh, again, if we look at the uh, crossbred market, Tech Wool Trading, very strong. Tech Wool Trading, also very strong in the skirtings, as was TNU. So good to see some, some of those bigger operators um, competing heavily in the market. And then what's in store for next week? Sydney, Melbourne and Fremantle, two-day sales in each centre, just over 36 bar, 36,000 bars of wool on offer. They are not big quantities for this time of the year. I would suggest the floods are causing some sort of havoc getting wool to market in the eastern states. I will say, last time, that four weeks ago, when the eastern market indicator took a jump, uh, that was reflected over a two-week period. Hopefully, if we can get this exchange rate heading in the right direction, uh, we might see a reasonably good market in Fremantle and Melbourne, Sydney next week. Danny, thank you so much for going through those details in the wool markets this week. Now, a few moments ago, you heard from the head of BP, who's been in Australia this week, and ABC Energy reporter Dan Mercer had quite a long conversation with him. One thing Bernard Looney did say to Daniel was that he thinks there should be a clampdown by industry on fugitive emissions, and he's referring to methane leakage from gas wells. Bernard Looney thinks this is a huge issue that needs to be fixed on economic and environmental grounds. If you want to read more about it, the story is online now, Daniel's story online. Just search ABC News and BP to read through Daniel's online story. Time for the news, one o'clock.